and why we do what we do. And uh, <clears throat> so we're starting in with where Jesus starts his ministry and why he starts it. <clears throat> you can bear with me because I've had a cold all week and uh, it has reached the cough stage, uh, which is the worst. I feel good, sound horrible, and uh, the coughing grosses my kids out. So whoever's going to be listening to this online will, you know, the volume will just blast them at a couple times, I'm sure. So let's open with a word of prayer, and then we will dive right into uh, the life of Christ. Father, again, we are thankful for your Son, for our Lord and our Savior. Lord, for his, willing to, his willingness to come and to live a sinless life in our midst and to die on the cross. And so, Father, we thank you for his life and his death by which we have salvation. Father, open our hearts and our minds to your word tonight. Uh, allow us to glean truth, uh, to leave here different than when we came in, uh, with, a, with a renewed purpose, a renewed sense of, of uh, meaning in our life uh, that comes only from you. And uh, we just praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. We've been taking through the, the life of Christ and... Uh, kind of following him along as best as we can chronologically. It's not always easy <clears throat> because with four different gospel writers, four different uh, biographers telling uh, different stories, different times, uh, the timeline sometimes gets uh, a little confusing. And so we're trying to follow it as close as we can chronologically. We ended last time uh, with his baptism and his temptation and, uh, and now we're, we're picking up where really he is ready to launch out publicly. And he, he realizes that it is now his time to go public. He kind of laid low for a while uh, while John did his ministry. And now John is in prison. And so Jesus took that as the sign that now he is to step out. The forerunner has done his job. And now he is to come in and uh, begin preaching. So we have this, what I'm calling phase one, or this first phase of ministry, and Jesus is really starting out small in this phase. It, the first phase of ministry lasts anywhere from a year to a year and a half, depending on who you read and who you talk to. Um, and so tonight we're really going to cover about a year's worth of time. Uh, and it really doesn't take very many chapters throughout the Gospels to cover that year. Um, everything at this point is fairly low-key which we may be surprised by if we're thinking about what Jesus is trying to accomplish, saving the world, and yet he's keeping it to remote villages on the north side of Galilee, around the small sea, not near Jerusalem, where everything should be taking place. If, you know, if I was to plan it, you know, this, uh, getting this ministry off, I would want to plan it in Jerusalem, where everything's happening, where all the people are. No, he went... 60, 70, 80 miles north to little towns and started very small. He didn't even, uh, for the first year, he didn't do really any wow, wow stuff uh, that, that on a large scale. Uh, you know, villagers were impressed. Villagers were surprised. Uh, you know, the disciples, he picked 12 uh, to kind of spend time with. And, uh, and so... We see during this early phase that, that Christ is establishing priorities and really a ministry strategy uh, in these, this first year. He's just kind of laying some groundwork. 
I want to look at uh, the first week, and I noticed in your notes as I was laying them out, you don't have to write anything for about four pages uh, before we get there. So unless you want to, there's no fill in the blanks for about four pages. Um, We want to look at this first week. Uh, And again, exact times are difficult to put together because the writers share different stories and the timeline sometimes gets a little fuzzy. So we're going to try to put it uh, in as best we can. Following the temptation in the desert, which is where we ended last week, Jesus returned to where John was baptizing. He went back to the place where he was baptized. So Jesus was baptized by John in the River Jordan at Bethany across the Jordan, not Bethany near Jerusalem, but the one on the other side of the Jordan River. And he was baptized there, and then we know immediately following the baptism, the Holy Spirit led him out into the desert for that 40-day fast and to be tempted uh, by the, the devil with that one-on-one uh, confrontation. So for 40 days, and this is what we sometimes lose as we're just reading through the Gospels, for 40 days, what does John the Baptist do? What he always did. He continues to preach. He's continuing to baptize. He's continuing to, to, to call people to repentance. And Jesus comes back on the scene after his 40 days in the wilderness, and John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say that he went to Galilee following his baptism and and his temptation. But John gives us a little more detail. And so that first week of his ministry really comes the majority from the Gospel of John, from his writings. John chapter 1, I have it outlined there for you, is John's testimony of who Jesus is uh, on day 1. He's telling who Jesus is, that he's the forerunner for it. And then it says, it's nice that he says the next day. Because then day two, John chapter 1, verse 29 through 34, Jesus is identified as the Lamb of God. And two of John's disciples, John the Baptist had disciples. Disciples weren't just a Jesus thing. They were any teacher's thing. Uh, All teachers, all philosophers had disciples uh, that came to learn from them. And John the Baptist had his own disciples. And two of his disciples were, were near enough when he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, that they left and transferred their allegiance at that point, or at least their, their interest, uh, their curiosity, they transferred from John the Baptist to Jesus. And John encouraged that, and rightfully so, because John's whole ministry was, I, it's not about me, it's about that guy, and there he is. That's the one I've been talking about. And so two of, the, two of John's disciples that second day begin to follow him. And the third day it says that Jesus spent the day with Andrew and John. Now it doesn't say John. It just says that two of the disciples and then identifies Andrew. And so we take it as being John because John's the one writing it down. Um, and for whatever reason, John never said I. He always referred to himself as how? the one that Jesus loved. Um, And uh, I don't know that that was a cocky thing. Maybe it was because John had a couple other things throughout his life that he tried to place himself above all of the others, and he learned that well from his mother um, because it was his mother that also tried to put James and John at the left hand and right hand of Jesus in heaven, uh, if you remember that. And so that's possible that he used that term, the one whom Jesus loved, as kind of a dig to the others. But Uh, We don't really know. We don't know motive from that. And so day three, Jesus spends the day with uh, Andrew and John. 
Day four, as they're walking along, he calls Philip and Nathaniel. Uh, and, uh, and at that point, he leaves for Galilee. Okay, so they're still down. Yeah, he sees Peter. Um, Andrew brings him Peter. Um, and that's kind of a tough one to match because we're not sure what Peter's doing there, unless Peter was also following John the disciple, but I doubt it. Um, that he was following, but Andrew went and found his brother. Now, his brother may have just been, they may have been there for some other reason, um, but he did find uh, Peter as well. So he calls Philip and Nathaniel, and then they set out for Galilee. Days 5, 6, and 7. If you look in John chapter 1, verse 43... That's, I mean, his name is, find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah. Then he brought Simon to Jesus. You are Simon, son of John. You will be called Cephas. So he changes his name at that point. He's Simon Barjona, or Simon, son of John. That's his name. His father's name was John. Right. Right. So there's two Andrews. No, just the one. There's Andrew, and he's Peter's brother. Peter and Andrew were brothers. And Andrew was following, um, Andrew was following uh, John the, the Baptist. And then as soon as he saw Jesus, he went and got his brother Peter and brought him to Jesus. Um, yep. And he's saying throughout there the next day, verse 35, the next day, uh, verse 43, the next day. Um, So we're getting a day by day. Now in chapter 2, verse 1, it says on the third day. Well, this third day is that there's the next day and then there's one, two, three on the third day after that. It's not like the third day of the week. But on the third day, they arrive in Cana at a wedding. And this is where his first miracle takes place. So they took a couple days, two or three days, to travel from where they were with John the Baptist back to Galilee, back to the the area of Nazareth where home was uh, for him. And that's where he was traveling back to him. As we know, they travel about 20 miles a day is what they could do. It was an uphill climb all the way back into Galilee. And... So as they're, you know, it would take two or three days to get there. And when they arrived, everyone was at this wedding. Remember, we said Nazareth's not a big town. Maybe a couple hundred people is all that lived there. And so everyone knew everyone in the area. And so when he went home, I don't know, note on the door, we're at the wedding. Um, and they all ended up going to Cana then to the wedding. And Cana's just a little bit north. I didn't put the map up today. Um, but Cana's just a little bit farther north uh, of Nazareth. And so Jesus really started his public ministry on a small scale. Uh, I think he was more concerned about the long term. He wanted to start small, get it strong, and grow. Uh, Because he knew what it was going to entail. He knew what was going to happen. He understood what they were going to need. And so his first year was spent mainly in Galilee, uh, around the Sea of Galilee, 
uh, would travel to Jerusalem for holy days, for the Passover and things like that. Um, but most of his first year was spent back up in Galilee where he was born and raised, um, preaching and teaching in the synagogues. He was calling a, calling a few followers and teaching them. Most of his public ministry and preaching would come after that first year, the large-scale preaching came after the first year. Three times in this first year, he predicted his own death, and they were all early on. Uh, John chapter 1, verse 50, while he's calling Philip and Nathaniel, he tells them. He says, uh, Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree. You shall see greater things than that. I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He said, you're going to see me ascend. I'm here right now. You're going to see me go back to heaven. You're going to see things greater than what you've just witnessed. And so he's already in his first disciples, the first people that he's calling to himself to follow him, to come and see what what I'm all about. He's already talking about. Now, interestingly enough, he didn't start with the bad news. He didn't start with the suffering and the death and the the, the burial. He started with the ascension. I'm going back to heaven. And... uh, and, and so he, he uh, right then, is predicting his own death. In John chapter 2, verse 19, if you go a little farther, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Uh, now he's back in Jerusalem for the Passover, and this is the first time he cleanses the temple. Many believe he did it twice. It's not the same story told in two different times because of the timeline. One's early in his ministry. One's late in his ministry. Far enough, enough time between the two that... They kind of thought, eh, we can do it again, or forgot that he told them not to do it, and they went back to doing it again. So he cleansed the temple twice, once very early on, and it's there that he says, tear down this temple, I'll build it again in three days, signifying his own body, not the actual Solomon's temple. Um, And then while talking to Nicodemus in chapter 3, verse 14, He says, uh, no one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. So he's pointing to his being lifted up uh, on a a rod, like Moses lifted the snake in the desert. He was talking about his own death. So here early on, with his disciples and with the people that he's teaching, he's already talking about what's going to be happening. He's laying the groundwork. Uh, for what his ministry is going to be about. Seven miracles are recorded in that first year. Yeah. When he first revealed that he was the son of God, did he get that whole concept? Um, I think he revealed it as he went. Uh, and, I mean, his disciples would have been the first one. He talks about being the son of man when he talks to, to Philip and Nathaniel. Um, and so very, very early on. Uh, I'd have to look to see where he actually used the term son of God. For the first time. Right. Yeah, I'd have to look at that and see where he first used Yes. The first time, right off the bat with Philip and Nathaniel, he's talking about his ascension, um, cleaning, cleansing the temple. He's talking about, kill me, I'll be back in three days. Um, destroy my temple, I'll be back in three days. And then with Nicodemus, he's talking about, I have to be lifted up the way Moses did with the snake in the desert. So he's already going at it, um, laying that, that groundwork for what he is all about, what his life is all about. Seven times, uh, seven miracles are recorded. 
um, throughout Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in this first year. Um, changing the water to wine at the wedding of Cana, of course, is the first one. We're going to talk more about uh, uh, miracles and healings and things like that a little later, so I'm just going to run through these real quick. The healing of the nobleman's son, healing a de- uh, demoniac in Capernaum, uh, which really kind of freaked the people out a little bit because no one had ever had authority over the demons like Jesus did. The demons had never listened to anyone before. And this guy came on the scene, and he spoke, and they moved. And it kind of scared them just a little, and uh, rightfully so, um, to see that kind of power and authority. Um, healing of Peter's mother-in-law, um, catching a great number of fish, healing a, a leper by touching him again. That just didn't happen. You didn't touch a leper. They were unclean. They would yell unclean so that everyone would avoid and, and go away and move to the other side. And, and they were instructed to do that. It was by law they had to do that. And here Jesus had compassion on him. This leper came up to him and said, heal me. I, I want to be healed. Jesus looked at him, had compassion on him, and touched him. That was unheard of to do something like that. Um, and then uh, healing of the paralytic lowered through the roof. I think uh, a lot of us are familiar with that story where four friends carried, uh, carried the paralytic and uh, lowered him down into the, uh, into the house. Um, he traveled, as I said, to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, John chapter 2 shares the first time that he cleansed the money changers out of the temple. Um, and this was the trip that he talked to Nicodemus uh, on. So uh, there's kind of a synopsis of, of a lot of some of the things that happened in that first year of his ministry. Um, and so I want to jump to the calling of the disciples because I think that is key. Um, because John, John gives us this the next day. The other writers don't always do that for us. And some of his disciples started following him when he left John, as we already said, with Peter and Andrew, or, and John, and others he called along the way before getting back to Galilee. And so uh, the actual choosing of the twelve and referring to them as apostles, okay, a disciple is what? A learner, a follower. And Jesus had many disciples. Um, you know, we, we think of the twelve disciples, but Jesus had many. And, uh, and so we, we have to understand that it's at this point that Jesus actually calls them and says the 12 uh, apostles. What does an apostle mean? One who is sent, a messenger. And so he calls these 12. And this is actually, he's calling these 12 at kind of the end of the first year. That's significant to remember. That while he was calling them out, he called Andrew, and Andrew went and got Peter and John, and, and he called John and James and, and Nathaniel and Philip, and we see that he called Matthew uh, in Matthew chapter 9, which would have been near the end of that first year of ministry. But it was a year into it before he ever named the twelve. And we tend to think he did that right off the bat, that he did it right away. No, you know why? They had to learn. Before they were sent out, before, they were, before they, he had to train them, he was going to spend quality time with them for that, that 12 months or that however long it was. And, and so he was spending with them before he commissioned them to go out as apostles. Um, 
And so here we have Matthew chapter 10, Mark chapter 3, and Luke chapter 6. We have the actual list of the 12. So I want to just bounce through uh, these 12 men and kind of look at who they were and uh, what we know about them because they are significant. Of all the disciples, Jesus chose these 12. Do you know why he chose these 12? What, what went into the choosing process? An entire night of prayer. Uh, if you look at, uh, at when he started, and I'm trying to think which one it is, whether it's Matthew, Mark, or, or Luke. I think it's Luke that talks about that he went and, and prayed all night up on the mountain and then came down from the mountain and went, you, 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 you. You're going to be my apostles. I'm going to, I'm going to send you out. Um, and it came just from, one, a year spending time with them all, and then a night of prayer. It seems like the disciples, like maybe 50, maybe 75. Yeah, we don't know how many there were. Um, you know, at the end, there were roughly 120 in the upper room at the, at, when Jesus came back. At, after his death, burial, and resurrection, there were about 100, 120 at that point. Um, and like I said, he kept it small on purpose uh, at the very beginning in order to get the, the 12 and then send them out, and then things were going to be able to begin to grow. There was no voting. <laughs> there was no voting. Uh, well, the first one we have in, uh, is Andrew. And like I said, Andrew is a disciple of John the Baptist, uh, and he introduces his brother Simon. John chapter 1, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard what John had said and who had followed Jesus. He was a fisherman by trade, as four of the disciples were. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, as Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, now he's already back up into Galilee. And one of these days, he's traveling through and walking by the sea. He saw two brothers, Simon called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. So Andrew and Peter were both fishermen. Um, Andrew received his call to become fishers of men while he was working on the shores. During that time when Jesus called him, they were tending their nets. And uh, Jesus called him to be fishers of men. Uh, he He was the first to follow Jesus, but he always took a back seat behind his brother Peter. Peter always rose to the top, usually good, bad, or indifferent. You know, he was right out there. Peter put it right out there. And Andrew, whether he was a younger brother, older brother, we don't know. Uh, But he tended to live in the shadow of Peter. And uh, John chapter 6 says another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, that's how they have to identify him. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. Because you all know who Simon Peter is. Well, this was his brother. Um, And so he he constantly lived in that shadow. Um, he was the one that brought the, the boy with the five uh, small uh, barley loaves and two small fish when they said, you know, these people, we've got to send them away. They're hungry. And Jesus said, well, feed them. What do we got? And Andrew was the one that went out. I mean, Andrew said, well, okay, I'm going to go find it. Andrew was the one that would, Jesus said and Andrew would do. Um, very compliant, very unlike his brother uh, in many ways. And so he, he, w- he went out and started looking. And all he could find was this boy with a sack lunch. And he brought it to Jesus and said, this is all I got. Uh, this is all I could find. Jesus said, I can make do with that. 
Um, He's mentioned by name only three times in the gospel records, and each time he is bringing someone to Jesus. That's important to know. Because Andrew is not the flamboyant, out front guy. But whenever you read about him in Scripture, he was bringing someone to Jesus. Uh, and, and God uses people like Andrews who are behind the scenes, the quiet one, the one living in the shadow of someone else. God's going to use them to bring people to himself. And we tend to think that it's, you know, the Peters that he wants. You know, it's the Peters he sometimes had to deal with. Uh, and it's the Andrews that he loved because Andrew never caused him trouble. Andrew just kept bringing people to him. And uh, that's what Jesus was looking for. Uh, in a book called 13 Men Who Changed the World, written by H.S. something. Um, I don't even want to try to pronounce it. Uh, there in, in the notes. It says, according to legend. Okay, now this is just according to legend. So understand we don't have a lot of good proof for this. Um, but you always want to know what happened to him. You know, after Acts, what happened? Uh, according to legend... Andrew traveled to Greece and preached in the province of Achaia. There he became a martyr and was crucified on an X-shaped cross. Centuries later, his relics were taken to Scotland. The ship which bore them was wrecked in a bay, which they subsequently called St. Andrew's Bay. The mariners reached shore and introduced men to the Savior. Andrew became the patron saint of Scotland. I never put this together. That that's Andrew, who the first golf course, famous golf course, is named after. How did I not know that St. Andrew's golf course was Andrew the Apostle? I, of all people, should have known that. I figured it out when I was studying for this. So that's kind of a synopsis of Andrew. He doesn't show up much. Look at his brother, Simon Peter. Again, he was introduced to Jesus by Andrew. That's one of the ones that, Jesus, that Andrew brought uh, to Jesus was, uh, was his brother. Um, he too, fisherman by trade, um, he experienced a miraculous catch of fish. Peter had a thing for the flamboyant, and Jesus kind of let him experience it every once in a while. Let him see the, 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 the big thing, the big splash, the flash, the, the excitement, um, because that was the way Peter was wired. And so he experienced two miraculous catches of fish, Uh, Luke chapter 5, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep water, let down the nets for a catch. And then, of course, the story is they had so much that they could not get it all. They had to call out the other boats and catch it all and and bring it all in. Um, And then in John chapter 21, after the death, burial, resurrection, uh, the, the disciples not sure about what's happening next. What are they supposed to do? As most of us would probably do, they fell back into what they did before. And they went back to the fishing. And you got Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and some of the other disciples back in the fishing boats. And there's a man on shore that yells out to them. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And as they're bringing it in, John realizes that it's Jesus. And he tells Peter, and Peter immediately dives out of the boat, swims to shore. And then we have John 21 where they gather around and have fish for breakfast. I don't know where Jesus caught the fish, um, whether he took the pan and they jumped in. Uh, You never know. Maybe that's how it happened. But Jesus had fish. He had breakfast already prepared for them uh, as they came in. And that was when he kind of reinstated uh, 
Peter, and they had that one-on-one, very intimate moment uh, with, uh, with Peter and his Lord as he said, do you love me? And Peter three times said, you know that I love you. And, uh, and Jesus said, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. I, I need you to go and shepherd the people. Um, so Peter was out there. Uh, we probably know more about him than any other. He was outspoken. He was a little rough around the edges. He usually spoke before he thought, um, up until Pentecost. And then he was dramatically transformed at Pentecost. He was a different man. Because this outspoken foot-and-mouth disease man, as soon as he's filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches and 3,000 people come to Jesus. 3,000 people accept the message that that Peter spoke. And the only difference was the Holy Spirit came in and changed him, transformed him. And uh, so it's interesting. Do a character study sometime of Peter prior to Pentecost and after Pentecost. What he's like in the Gospels and what he's like in the book of Acts. Phenomenal transformation. Dramatic change. Um, He is one of the main characters of Acts. And uh, he wrote at least two letters, first and second Peter, uh, is what he wrote. And uh, again, according to tradition, he died in Rome. How long he resided there prior to his death is not known. The sources are contradictory. His manner of death had been foretold by Jesus in John chapter 21. He was crucified, but whether he was crucified upside down, as tradition tells us, is also debatable. Um, the the uh, tradition or the uh, story goes that they were going to crucify him, and he said he was not worthy to be crucified in the same manner as Christ and asked to be crucified upside down, um, head to the ground instead of feet to the ground. Debatable, we don't know. Makes a good story, though. Um, moving along to James and John, two brothers um, that also followed Jesus. John was a disciple of John the Baptist. We believe that he was the other one. He says that two of John's uh, disciples, Andrew and the other one. We think he was the other one. Uh, He is the author of this gospel, uh, the gospel of John. He also wrote three letters, which uh, Bill Gressley is walking us through in Sunday school on the stage, a little unashamed plug uh, for that. He's going through 1st, 2nd, 3rd John and Jude uh, on Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock on the stage. And uh, he wrote all three of those and the Revelation. And he referred to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. John's focus in everything was believing. Uh, You know, he said, for God so loved the world, or he he told the story of of Jesus talking to Nicodemus, said, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verse 13, he says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son so that you may know that you have eternal life. So that you know beyond a shadow of doubt. Those of you who believe. And so believing and knowing were key, uh, key concepts with, with John, uh, this apostle. Uh, John and James worked with their father, Zebedee was his name, as a fisherman. Um, some even believe that they were cousins of Jesus, that John, James and John's mother was a sister to Mary. Um, I don't know where that is, but that's, again, tradition kind of uh, signifies that, which is why Mary thought she had a right to go to Jesus, her nephew, 
and ask for those two special places for her son, his cousins, when he comes into glory. Um, and so there, there has to have been some sort of relationship between that family uh, before, um, something that was there. Um, James and John wanted to call down fire from heaven on a Samaritan city that refused to let the twelve pass through. Um, because Samaria, as, you, as many of you may know, um, Samaria, Samaritans and Jews did not get along. Samaritans were half Babylonian, half Jew. And so they weren't pure Jew. And so the Jews didn't think real highly of the Samaritans, and the Samaritans didn't think real highly of the Jews. And so to get to Galilee, you had to walk either through Samaria or all the way around. Jesus didn't feel like walking all the way around, and he wanted to go through Samaria, and they tried to talk him out of it. And when they got to the first city and asked to be able to travel through, they said, no, we're not going to let you through. James and John, sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, Jesus called them, immediately wanted to call down fire and brimstone and destroy that city. That was James and John. That was kind of their temperament. That was what they were about. Uh, They were fiery. And... uh, and they kind of just went through their whole ministry that way. We do know what happens to James. He's the only one that we know. In Acts chapter 12, verse 2, um, they're writing and says, It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. So halfway through the book of Acts, James uh, is killed by Herod. Uh, in a, in a, uh, as he is trying to persecute uh, the leaders and trying to destroy the leaders. Uh, many believe that James was the leader or the pastor, the shepherd of the church at Jerusalem. Uh, so he would be the major threat to King Herod, uh, and Herod would want then to remove him and make an example out of him to all of the others. Um, and so uh, we do know what happened. Uh, interesting, too, may not understand that Simon and Andrew, James and John were partners. They all worked together, which is why their boats were always there. They were always seen to work together. Um, we can read that in Luke chapter 5, that they, uh, James and John were Simon's partners. Um, they were also, James and John were also part of the inner circle. Jesus had the 12, but he also had three that he was even more closely uh, in relationship with than the other nine, and that was Peter, James, and John. Uh, If you remember in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus went in to pray, the disciples kind of stayed at the gate. He called Peter, James, and John to go in a little farther with him. Yeah. Yeah, the Mount of Transfiguration when uh, Jesus went up and kind of hung out with Moses and Elijah. I mean, that was kind of a pretty cool thing that Moses and Elijah just appeared there. Jesus' whole countenance was changed uh, to full glory. And Peter, James, and John got to witness that. They didn't get it. They didn't understand it. They wanted to build temples right there, and we get to stay here forever. Um, you know, we get that. If, you, if, you, uh, you know, if you've ever had an incredible spiritual experience, you go to a concert, you hear a speaker, kids do it at camp, kids do it at life all the time. We just wish life would never end, that life would just go on for another week, and, you know, the adults are going, oh, please no. Um, go home now. And uh, so a, a week with 8,000 teenagers from all over the United States, one week is long enough. 
And, uh, but, but you get in that, and you just don't want it to end. And that's where Peter was. Peter said, we just need to stay here. This, this was awesome. This was unbelievable. I've never experienced anything like it. And, uh, but Jesus allowed them a little glimpse uh, into what he was doing. So they kind of uh, uh, were closer to him. Philip, and we need to hurry through these. It won't be tough to hurry through the rest of them. Um, Philip seems to be the conservative thinker of the group. He's always analyzing. He's not taking anything at face value. He wants to know. He wants it explained. He wants to be totally sure that he understands it. Uh, He recognized Jesus as the one Moses and the prophets spoke about. He had studied Moses and the prophets. He was probably looking for the Messiah because when he calls uh, Nathaniel, when he goes and and finds Nathaniel, where is it? Philip, yeah, John 145. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law and about whom the prophets also wrote. You see, he had studied those. He analyzed those. He knew what he was looking for. And he says, we found that one. Um, and so he, he recognized that. Jesus said to get the 5,000 something to eat. And if, if Philip said, we can't buy that much food, he immediately was calculating how much it was going to take to feed all those people. And he said, we can't do that. He was the analyzer. He was the thinker of the group. Um, Sometimes that will slow you down. Sometimes it avoids a lot of problems. Uh, Philip, you know, would think through it. He would analyze, talk through it, and, and come out with a, with a solution. Um, tradition places his preaching endeavors among the provinces of Galatia and Phrygia in Asia Minor, which is up and around, should have had the map, which is up and around the Mediterranean Sea, um, north and west of uh, of Israel. Uh, he died at Hierapolis, a city near Colossae and Laodicea. Of the manner of his death, we cannot be certain, but we know he died. Nathaniel. Nathaniel came uh, at Philip's invitation. Uh, he's also called Bartholomew. Uh, Matthew, in his list, doesn't list Nathaniel. He lists Bartholomew, but he lists it right after Philip. So we believe that they, these are the same person. Um, that he could be Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy, which would be Bar-Tolmai, Bartholomew. So he could be Nathaniel, son of Ptolemy. So he could go by both names, just like Simon Bar-Jonah. Uh, he could have gone by Bar-Jonah. Um, he's the son of Jonah. So um, he was the philosopher, the visionary, um, always wanted to see the big picture, Uh, Remember, Jesus saw him sitting under the tree, no doubt thinking. Uh, Jesus tended to play with his mind uh, because that was where his playground was. He wanted to think through things and and have his mind challenged. And so Jesus says, when Jesus saw Nathanael approaching, he said of him, Here is a true Israelite in whom there is nothing false. How do you know me, Nathanael? Jesus said, I saw you while you were still under the fig tree before Philip called you. (laughs) Whoa. Okay, you just blew the philosopher's mind that you knew where he was, saw what he was doing from, from afar. And so Nathaniel was that thinker, that, that philosophizer in the group. Tradition says that he continued as a disciple, but early church sources are very obscure as the scene um, of his labors and the extent of his preaching. He presumab- uh, presumably met death by flogging, His body being tied up in a sack was thrown into the sea. Again, tradition. We don't know what happened. Which brings us to Matthew. What was Matthew's job? 
tax collector. Um, as Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. Now, we've got to understand something about Matthew. When Matthew got up and left his job and followed Jesus, I think that was a bigger commitment than Andrew, Peter, James, and John leaving their nets and following Jesus. Do you know why? Matthew's not going back. When he left that tax collector's booth, Rome wrote him off. He wasn't going back to work if this thing with Jesus didn't work out. He was sold out at that point. Now again, this is almost a year into Jesus' ministry. Okay, so Matthew had heard about him. This wasn't a cold turkey, who's this guy, follow me, okay. Uh, he knew who he was. He, he had watched him, he had seen him. He no doubt from his tax collector's booth saw him coming up the street and just wanted to see what he was going to do next. And when he stopped and said, you, you follow me. Okay, he was already there. God had already prepared his heart to leave that and go. Um, but sometimes we think it's this cold turkey. He just popped in on the scene and boom, off and Matthew went. No, he'd have been around for a while. Yeah. And tax collectors were not poor guys. They usually built, and, and the thing about that is, not only would Rome hate him because he left the booth, the Jews already hated him because he had been bilking them out of higher taxes, and that's where he made his extra income was he would charge more than what was required, and he would keep the rest. Um, and so the Jews hated him. I, I can only imagine that some of those disciples were thinking, what are you doing with this guy? And who knows, in that area, Jesus may have already gone and paid his tax to Matthew. Jesus, Matthew may have been Mary and Joseph's tax collector. Possibly from the same area. Um, and so there's a, that relationship that's there. Um, early church leaders tell us that after the resurrection of Jesus, Matthew preached to the Jews. This we can believe, and according to tradition, he takes his own people as his mission field and dies a martyr's death in Ethiopia. I don't know how he gets in Ethiopia, but that's what tradition has. Thomas, nicknamed Doubting Thomas for his reaction to Jesus' resurrection report. Um, some have said more Thomas the pessimist. Um, I think we need to understand that Thomas skipped church one Sunday night and was labeled a doubter the rest of his life. Okay, because he missed that first time. He wasn't with them when Jesus just showed up in the room. And they said, Thomas, you gotta believe you won't believe what we just what we just saw. Jesus just showed up. Uh uh-uh, uh, I won't believe it. I gotta see it. I gotta be able to put my fingers in his hands and his feet and in his side. And so he skipped church one time on a Sunday night and was labeled a doubter. Just think about it. <laughs> Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us all also go that we may die with him. Uh, this was a time when Jesus was saying he was going to go back to Jerusalem. They were trying to talk him out of it because they knew what was coming. And Thomas says, no, let's go. We're going to die. Let's go die. Okay, not the optimist of the group. Totally committed, but let's go die too. Probably not a cheerleader. Um, tradition says that he preached in India where he became a martyr. Um, James, the son of Alphaeus, also James the Less, James the Little, 
as opposed to James, the son of thunder. Uh, nothing else is known about him. He's never mentioned again. Um, only his name. So we don't know anything about James other than he was nicknamed the less. How'd you like to go through that? I'm James the less. Um, Thaddeus, also called Judas, son of James, not James the less, but Judas and not John and James, but another James. James was a very common name. He may have gone by Judas because in some of the lists he's Judas and in some of the lists he's Thaddeus, but once Judas Iscariot, Iscariot kind of marred that name, he didn't want to be confused with that Judas and probably just went by Thaddeus from that point on. And so some called him Judas, some called him Thaddeus um, with that. Toward the end of his life, he is said to have preached in the regions of Edessa, Armenia, and Persia. Some say he met a martyr's death in Persia. Then we have Simon the Zealot. If you remember the Zealots from one of the earlier lessons, they were a political group. Uh, They were a radical group who fought for Israel's freedom from Rome. Um, And they were the ones that fought during that census uh, that Quirinius called for in 6 AD. And there was a great revolt, and those that revolted were called the Zealots. Simon was part of this political party. Um, So Jesus is calling all walks of life into this group of 12. Haters, people that the Jews hated. Uh, Simon probably hated Matthew because he sold out to Rome and, and tax. And so he's got all kinds of personalities and, and problems in his, in his group of 12. Um, and this is really all that, that we are told. He's never really mentioned again. But the appeal of Jesus, king of the Jews, overthrowing Rome... Setting people free would appeal to a zealot like Simon. He wanted that. Simon would understand the military analogies of, of fighting like an army and fighting an enemy. Um, Acts chapter 1, so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That's what Simon was all about. That's what Simon wanted. He wanted Israel restored. And Jesus says, it's not for you to know the times nor the dates nor the hour." Quite a contrast with Matthew. Tradition tells us that he died by crucifixion. Then we have Judas Iscariot, or Judas of Kerioth. It's a region of Judea. Uh, He's a southerner. No one else was from around there. Uh, Judas was chosen to be an apostle just like the others. One of the the answers following the the all-night prayer session was Judas. There must have been something of value in him. At that early stage, there must have been something uh, other than the, the fulfilling of prophecy, because I have to believe that, that he was a he was a follower. He was a disciple. He was called an apostle like all of the others. And we sometimes just write him off because of the way he ended. But there must have been something of value in him that, that he was chosen to be the treasurer of the group. There was trustworthiness. There was loyalty. When the twelve were were sent out in pairs, someone was paired up with Judas. Now, if Judas wasn't a believer, if he wasn't a true follower, if he was not a, uh, a true disciple, that guy got gypped, whoever had to go with Judas. You know, I don't know that Judas was the last one picked for the team. Okay? Someone had him as their partner going from town to town. But something happened with Judas. He started well, but he didn't finish well. He lost sight of what Jesus was all about. 
says one of his disciples, Jesus Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold? You see, now he's starting to think. This is when the, the woman uh, anointed Jesus with this expensive perfume. And Judas said, man, why wasn't it sold? But it says the commentary here says he did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. Somewhere along the, to- along the line, he went off. He went the wrong way. He began to choose poorly. And, uh, uh, and then we see in Luke chapter 22, then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. Still called one of the twelve. Some have said that he is probably the only one worthy of being chosen from a human standpoint. By human standards, Judas is probably the first one you and I would have picked. Uh, and yet, we see that after the full night of prayer... Jesus put together quite a motley crew of disciples, of apostles, that he was going to spend the next year and a half, two and a half years working with. Yeah? How old do you think he was when he received his um, How old was Jesus? Um, if he started at 30, and this would have been a year in, he'd be about 31. Yeah, we don't know anything from 12 to 30. Uh, there's 18 years of nothing. Um, speculation and guesswork is what we have. Um, what I spent 50 minutes to get to, <laughs> and we will get through it, was why did Jesus do all this? Jesus is starting small. Jesus came to earth. Why do you think Jesus came? To redeem us. Anyone else? That's not wrong. What, I'm, I'm pretty sure what you say is going to be right. Let me just take you right off the hook there. To be a sacrifice for our sins. To redeem us. To be the Savior. To teach us, too. To, to leave the church uh, behind so that others could believe uh, as well. Interestingly enough, and when I went through the Truth Project the first time, I went, Aha! Because this was a question that Del Tackett asked. And in John chapter 18, as Jesus is talking with Pilate, Pilate says, you are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this reason I came in, come into the world, to testify to the truth. That's the number one reason why Jesus came, to testify to the truth. He did all these other things. He was the Savior, died on the cross, shed his blood, redeemed us, built the church. But his number one reason for coming, when he is on trial before Pilate and accused of being a king, he says, for this reason I came, to testify to the truth. You know what Pilate's next statement was? What is truth? And we've been arguing that answer ever since. This was his overarching purpose in coming, to testify to the truth. That truth, truth is best defined, and I got this from, from the Truth Project, as a correspondence to reality. Truth and reality go hand in hand. They have to. Truth is that which is really real. Okay? Jesus came to testify to what is real. Jesus said, there's a whole lot of unreal things. There's a whole lot of lies. There's a whole lot of misconceptions. I have come to testify to the truth. I have come to testify to what is real. 
Everything else is a lie. That's the opposite of truth, a lie. And you know what the opposite of reality is? Insanity. He said, I've come to testify to what is real. Everything else is insane. Everything else is crazy. I've come to testify to the truth. My whole life is about the truth. In fact, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the ultimate reality. Everything that is not of him is false, is a lie. So what is the truth? Jesus is truth. God is truth. Everything about him is truth. Something is true only because it corresponds to the reality of who Jesus is. Something is true if it corresponds to the nature and character of God. Jesus says, I have come to testify to reality, to testify to what is real. Uh, There is an absolute reality. God is the author of that reality. Anything that is real will point back to God. Anything that is true will go right back and find its origin in God, in his character, in his nature, in his action. The only way to know truth is to know God. And the way we know God is faith through his word. That's how we know God. That's how we know truth. Our faith then is based, get this, our faith is based on logical reason because it's based on reality. We do not have faith that is based in faith alone, but we have faith that is based in in truth, in the life of Jesus, in what is real, in the ultimate reality. That's what our faith is based on. And so our faith has to be logical. We have to be able to reason it out. We are certain of what we do not see. We're sure of what we hope for, certain of what we do not see, because it's logical and it's reasoning. We can't see it, but we're certain of it, because it makes sense. It's real. It's based in reality. It's not faith in faith. It's faith in Jesus, the ultimate reality. Salvation is first formed in the mind of an unbeliever and then travels from the mind to the heart. We tell people, children especially, and, and just recently I've started having problems with this. We tell a little one what should they do to become a Christian. Ask Jesus into your heart. Do you know that's not biblical? Nowhere in Scripture will you find anyone instructed to ask Jesus into your heart. But do you know what we need to do? We need to be telling these new believers, these, these unbelievers who are struggling, and these Little children, we need to say, you need to ask Jesus into your mind. Because then, he says, do not conform any longer to the, to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your heart, the renewing of your mind. We have a video. Greg, are you ready for that? This is a video from the Truth Project. And I want us to listen very closely to what R.C. Sproul says with this idea of mind and heart and truth. Hopefully, we, have, we had it earlier. We're I'll probably living that. in the most anti-intellectual period in the history of the church. Not anti-scientific, not anti-academic, but anti-intellect, anti-mind. The Bible tells us that we are called as Christian people 
not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed. And the way of that transformation is through the renewing of the mind. We have been made by our Creator to have a direct line from the brain or from the mind to the heart. And so for the scripture, the new mind brings with it always a new heart. But you can't bypass the mind in an attempt to have a renewed heart. And that's what people are trying to do today. I don't want to learn. I don't want to study the word of God. I want to have a feeling. I want to have some kind of mystical experience and let that supplant or replace the hard study of the content of the word of God. But the scripture says the way life changes is when the mind changes. That's huge. The way life changes is when the mind changes. And the heart will change and follow the mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's not a heart issue. It's a head issue. We need to think right. We need to, to, our faith needs to be a thinking faith, a reasoning faith, a logical faith, not a blind faith. Jesus doesn't call us to that. And when he said we, we live in the, the age of anti-intellectualism, that is so true. We don't want to think. Just tell me what to think. Tell me what to do. And people are blindly following people. You can see it in churches. You can see it in in the world. They just finally change. One word got him elected. Change. Change what? Oh, I don't know. But we're going to change it. Why? Blindly follow. Blindly. No. Jesus is the ultimate reality. Logical. Reasoning. Faith, transformation of the mind and the heart will follow. We need to be learners. We need to be studiers. Del Tackett said this morning in the Truth Project, we should all be theologians. Because theology just means the study of God. To know God. To understand God. And it's all based in reality. It is what is real. We're not going to go to the rest of the purpose because I don't want to fly through it. We're going to pick up right there uh, next week and uh, move on in. Jesus started small. We're just going to go slow right with Jesus. Let me pray for you. Any questions? I do want to, I don't, and, and as, as I've always said, if you have questions, you write them down, you email me, hand them to me, call me, leave me a message on the phone, talk to me, whatever. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Wasn't, yeah, wasn't James the brother of John? Because I think by that time, that James was already dead. Herod had already killed him. wonder if they could, no. <laughs> right. Yeah, heart doesn't change. The, all the change, all the transformation in a person comes from the mind, not the heart. And so we need to be feeding the mind, and the heart will follow.
Let me pray for you. Father, we uh, again are grateful that you are a God of truth and that you have given us your truth, that you have seen fit to, to reveal yourself, that only we can know anything that we can know about you, we only know because you've told us, you've revealed it, and you've given us your word uh, to, to, to show us who you are. Father, help us to know, help us to be theologians, help us to study, help us to learn. Give us an appetite to feed the mind. Father, let us not escape, let us not get lazy, let us not get weary in well-doing. Father, that we might logically, based upon ultimate reality, live a life that is pleasing to you. In Jesus' name, amen.